So if you're in Psalm 126, um, we're going to start there. I, I enjoy watching uh, restoration projects, those time-lapse videos of uh, like lawn care people transforming uh, an overgrown lot in just a few minutes. Uh, I'll even put that on, you know, double the speed because that's how fast I want to see it happen. But they're, they're, they're satisfying to consume. You, you see immediate progress in, uh, in, in the work that they do. I have also enjoyed seeing the progress on uh, Gage and Jess's house that, made, that they made on restoring their house. Uh, that's taken a little more time. Like the time-lapse videos are immediate. The remodel of a house is gradual. It happens over time. The restoration of a lawn or a house or a life are all joyful experiences. But the greater the restoration project, the greater the joy. And in what we see in Psalm 126 is the restoration of a people. We see God restoring a people. And God restoring them in a way that they pray for further restoration. Here, we are all restoration projects in some way. And God has restored us to his joy and he's restored us to work with joy. And in the seventh Psalm of Ascent, the psalm that many people sang on their way back to Jerusalem for the, for the worship of God in God's city, this dangerous journey has turned to a joyful journey because God's people are at home. So we're going to read Psalm 126 together. Would you just stand together with me as we read? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like strings in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just the, the two uh, points that we're going to make, the two big buckets we're going to put our thoughts in, is restored to joy, working with joy. We're all restoration projects, and in some way or the other, this psalm, this poem, this song is telling us that whether it's an individual or a group of people, God restores people for joy, to joy, so that they will work with joy. God restores people to joy, so they'll work with joy. So you see right there in the text in verse one, the first thing it says is when. When the Lord restored the fortunes of his people, the fortunes of Zion. That Zion was just another name for Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem was built on, on, around with these hills and the city of Zion, the temple, the tabernacle was built up on this hill in, in, 
on, on called Mount Zion, is, and so is where the presence of God dwelt. It's where God chose to manifest his presence in a special way to his people. Yes, he's everywhere, but he's especially in this place among his people doing special things there. And when God restored the fortunes of Zion. So when, when is that? Well, it refers to a time in history. But that time is a little closed off to us. We don't know the exact time. But we, most commentators believe that this refers to the release of the captives in 538 B.C. And there was a time when, uh, because of the sin of God's people, the Hebrew people, the children of Israel, were taken into captivity in, in Babylon. And, and Nebuchadnezzar overtook them and took them away. And, and many of them had to spread out from their homeland and, and go to other places. And they were in captivity. And this word here, uh, restore, refers, uh, oftentimes in the Hebrew, refers to, implies captivity it, when it occurs. But it, and when it's used as it is here, it means literally restore the captivity of. Restore the captivity of Zion or Israel, God's people. And so one scholar says this expression essentially indicates that Yahweh is returning something to the way it was before the calamity happened. God, God is restoring something to the way it was or should have been. He's restoring the, the fortunes of Zion when then was to return the people back to the city where God dwelt. This is where they wanted to be. The fortunes were not wealth or prosperity but being in the very presence of God. You know, friends, one of the ways to tell if someone is a Christian is to see if they're, they have a restored relationship with God or not. Do they see God and a relationship with him as the primary good of what it means to become a Christian, of what it means to repent of your sins and trust in God? Are they turning to God for something they can get? Or are they turning to God for God himself? Does someone say, take the world, but give me Jesus? You can have everything. This is what the life Jesus calls all disciples to. He calls them to, to fling away the hopes of this world, to fling away the desires of this world, to take him and him alone. Take the world. Give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. They, these people wanted to be with God, not just to get from God. And is that you this morning? Is, is that why you're a Christian? Is it because you want God more than anything else? You want a relationship with him more than anything else? Take the world but give me Jesus. How, friends, did this coming back from exile make them feel? What, what effect did this have on them? And, then, and we're still in verse one of chapter 125. We're still right there, of chapter 126. We're still right there. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. God talks about their, how, how they felt. The psalmist is talking about how he feels. It was, like, it was like a dream that you didn't want to end. Have you, ever had, have you ever had a dream you didn't want to end? Like, 
being on a beach in Mexico with a great novel in your hands, or whatever your dream is. Maybe yours is camping in the mountains. I don't understand that dream, but maybe that's your dream. Or, but you know the feeling of not wanting to wake up from a dream that you've always wanted to come true. Friends, this is better than that. God's people are restored to God's place with his presence, and it's, it's actually more like the words you hear from a doctor, your cancer is in remission. It's, it's more like the ultrasound after years of infertility. It's like seeing your soldier husband after a, a long war. It's too good to be true. Don't wake me up. And this is how they felt. This is how they felt. It was like a dream. Like, it's too good to be true. And this is God's people back in the land, dwelling with God in his presence, the true king ruling over them. You know, on, on May 8th, just to illustrate uh, what this was like, on May 8th, 1945, Germany surrendered to the Allies. And, and what ensued after Germany surrendered was unfettered joy in the streets of America and, and all the Allied cities. They these allies thought, fought through the nightmare of World War II and, and what had happened when, the part, when that part of the war was over was like a dream. Like they couldn't believe it. And you've seen the pictures of, of celebrations in the streets and soldiers kissing strangers and all of that. It's all because it was like, it's too good to be true and, and we're really gonna enjoy this time. This is what it was like when their fortunes were restored, friends. The world was freed from Hitler's tyranny and the Nazis' death camp. And in verse 2, it, it, it says how they expressed it. Their mouths were filled with laughter, and, their, they, and there were songs of joy because the Lord had done great things for them. Their feelings turned into expressions of, of shouts of joy because God had rescued them, restored them, redeemed them, brought them back. And friends, I wonder if that's, that's your story too. Has God restored your relationship, brought you back to him? The story of the Bible is that uh, our sins, the sins of our first parents and our own sins have separated us from God, driven us east of Eden, driven us away from his presence. As, as a punishment for sinning against the holy God. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about how God is restoring and redeeming his people back to himself through his own work, through his own love, through his own mercy and his grace. Now, and I think, you know, as Gage preached from Psalm 124, it helped us think about how our help is in the name of the Lord he, he encouraged us from that text to be thinking about how the Lord is on our side and what it would be like if he was not on our side. Well, the people of Zion had been exiled, living under the rulers that were not on their side. They not only imagined it, they lived through it. And, and their restoration, similar in our conversion, it, it not only what it would have been like if the Lord was not on our side. We're not only to think about what it would have been like if the Lord was not on our side, but he's calling us to remember that he is on our side 
and that he has done great things for us. He repeats it twice. It's a, an important point for, uh, for, the, for the poet. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were glad. One of the things, dear Christian friend, brother, dear Christian sister, one of the things for us to remember, for, for us to have joy and laughter in our mouth more often is to remember that God is on our side, that he has, he has restored us. He, he, has, he has given us the things, everything that we need for this life. There's no condemnation. And we must remember that once we were enemies of God, without hope and without life, without God in this world, but God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love, he made us alive together with him. He restored our fortunes, your fortunes. And Psalm 126, verses one through three, is the but God of the songs of ascents. He restored our fortunes. He has done great things, and we are filled with joy. And friends, the consequences of being restored is that it fills us with joy that is expressed in our mouth, with, with our mouth. So much so that even the nations, the, the Gentiles, the, the word here is goyim, the, the nations, the Gentile people knew what the Lord did for them. This joy has welled up in their heart. They have expressed it so much so that everyone else knows about it. The word has spread. The nations knew about what the Lord did for them in Egypt. And now they know that the Lord has delivered them, has delivered them from exile because the people are talking about it. They can't, they can't shut up, if you will. And the Babylonian exile, unlike the Egyptian exile, the Egyptian bondage was not due to any faults of their own. The, the Israelites, the Hebrew people were there and the, the Egyptian people cruelly enslaved them. Unlike that, the Babylonian exile was due to their disobedience in God's law and their disobedience in their worship practices. And God has dis disciplines them for their sins. They're, they're, they're put into exile. And yet, even in their own sin in their exiled state due to their own sins, God is restoring them. And, and in doing so, he fills their mouth with joy so that the nations know about it. So does dwelling on your rescue from sin result in your mouth filled with joy and laughter? Maybe with a phrase like, the Lord has done great things. I was just thinking about how we could do that, but particularly, specifically, how I could do that in my everyday conversation. I, I meet quite a few new people in my, in, my, in my role and just in my everyday life, and often the, the conversation will turn to, what do you do? And in Corvallis, when I say what I do, it usually shuts down the conversation. I don't know, none of the rest of you weren't pastors, but uh, maybe you could imagine when I, they say, hey, Doug, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And there's usually like a, well, it was nice knowing you. <laughs> it was nice talking with you. Uh, let's move on. So I was thinking, like, how, how could we as a people uh, and me as a pastor just talk freely about the great things the Lord has done in a way to provoke conversation, maybe to provoke questions like, uh, 
hey, I'm a pastor, but more than that, I'm just a devoted Christian. So all of us have, like, we, we have our responses pre-recorded, right? So, hey, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're meeting somebody, you, someone asks you, hey, what do you do? Well, uh, who are you? I'm, I'm married to Bridget. I have four kids. I like books and coffee and basketball, and I'm a pastor. Uh, what, what, if I would, what if I would say, uh, I'm married to Bridget, I have four kids, and I'm a devout Christian because of how good and kind God is? That uh, might seem awkward, and maybe there's another way I could phrase it, but w- what about thinking this way, thinking this way could, could help us? What about, what about you thinking, like, what, whatever you do, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm married to such and such, I'm a school teacher, and I'm a devout Christian who loves Jesus because he's good and kind. That might provoke questions. Uh, and maybe the most important thing about you is that you are a Christian and you're, you're really loving these people by saying the other things. I, I'm married, I have you know, this and that hobby, and I'm a devout Christian. Maybe that will shut, I don't know if that's the best way to do it or not. But let's be thinking about, can we be thinking about how we can talk about the great things God has done in our lives? Why? Well, one of the reasons is to give him glory, but another reason is because we want great things to be done in their lives. We want them to be restored and forgiven. We're not better than them. We, we want to be friends that do not want to see them suffer eternal punishment. We don't want them to, to suffer under the wrath of God. We want them to know that Jesus has taken all of that wrath on himself for their sins, and they can be restored to a relationship with God. And it'll be like a dream that you don't want to wake up from. There'll be laughter and joy. Oh, dear friends, let us think about our restoration and our conversion, what God has done for us, and that he might do it for others as well. Friends, as we now transition into our last point, Verses one through three is a reflection on God's gracious work in the people of God, resulting in laughter and joy. And and the joy was so palpable that the nations knew about that God had done great things for them. The Lord had restored the fortunes of his people and, and, and everyone knew about it. But he was also in the process of restoring them. God restored them and he was restoring them. Restored and restoring. Now, how can that be? How can, how can the people be restored and being restored at the same time? This is just to theologically geek out on you a little bit. This is called inaugurated eschatology. This is a phenomenon in the Bible called already, not yet. And here's what, here's what one Christian writer says about it about this tension in the Christian life that we're saved and we're still being saved. And one day we'll be finally saved. He says this, for now Christians live in a great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we are already adopted, redeemed, sanctified, and saved. And in another sense, in another sense, these experiences are not yet fully ours. Underneath this theological and practical tension are two comings of Christ. In his first coming, he inaugurated the last days. In his second coming, he will complete them. 
In the meantime, we live for now in the overlap of the ages. That is already, but not yet. You see, that's, it's really nice that that, that that theologian said that, but where do we find this in the Bible? Well, I think one pla- all of the New Testament has this sort of already not yet in it. One, one place that I've been trying to memorize for the last few years, Romans 8, I think is, is really helpful. Uh, Romans 8 in uh, chapter eight, verse, starting in verse 16, if I can find it, sorry guys. Romans eight, see if I had it memorized, I wouldn't even have to flip in the pages. Romans eight says, 16 says this, talking about being heirs with Christ. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're already adopted sons and daughters of God. That's a, that's a fact based on the benef- the, what Christ has done for us in salvation. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we are already heirs of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, and the creation is waiting for the reality of that adoption to be known to everyone. But not only that, we also are waiting for that reality. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But the creation is waiting it for the fullness of it, and so are we. We're re- waiting for the fullness of the reality of our adoption. And don't you actually feel that from time to time in your life? You know you're a Christian, but your sins and, and, and the hardships and the suffering of life sometimes, uh, sometimes press up against that to make you wonder if you really are. And this tension, this already not yet, really helps us to go back and not listen to our feelings, but to listen to what the Spirit says. You are sons and daughters of God. And the fullness of that reality will be. And we live in the already not yet. And so here in Psalm 126, the people are restored and and being restored. They're living in that reality as well. God is has restored them and is restoring them. The already, the not yet. Restored and always being restored by God. So that leads us to our last point. We work with joy because God restores us to joy. So working with joy. Restored people pray for greater restoration. So in this section, the poet, the songwriter, uses two images, okay? He uses two images for us. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is this imagery that helps us get into what the text is saying. 
So these two images help us see the way God restores us. They're, they're analogies, uh, they're, they're sort of metaphors for, for our spiritual restoration as individuals, but really as God's people. And one is sudden, and one is slow. One is extraordinary, and one is ordinary. But both are works of God. Let's read about them. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing, with, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, what in the world does all that mean, right? Negev and sheaves and all of that. Uh, maybe, a, you know, maybe a farmer should have come up and given this analogy, but I'm going to do my best, okay? Both of these images, the streams in the Negev and the farming, tell us how God restores his people. One is sudden. One is like a work of revival among his people. If you ever talk to someone who's been a part of a true revival, they said, we didn't plan for it. It just happened. This is what Tim Keller says in New York, is that we weren't planning for anything. We have no idea how it happened. You can't recreate this, this thing that happened in New York City uh, during the 90s and 2000s. You can't do it. It was a work of God. Only he does it. It was extraordinary, and it was fast, and it was big. And the other one is ordinary. So when he says, restore us like the streams of the Negev, that first image is a dramatic transformation of a desert in a short amount of time due to the abundance of rainfall. And I was reminded of, of planet Earth. Have you, has anyone seen planet Earth? If, if your hand isn't up, you should, you should watch it, okay? I don't do a lot of, I shouldn't do a lot of aughts, but planet Earth is awesome. And one of, one of the episodes in planet Earth is about deserts. And it talks about... Uh, some of the driest places on earth. And they'll show when, the, when that desert, one or two times a year, gets this massive rainfall, even if it's just for a day. And, and they'll get these flash floods that, that come down the, the, the dry plain of the, of the desert riverbed. And it will just bring life in a quick amount of time to that place. And, and it'll show the time-lapse video in planet Earth how, how some of the driest places on Earth transform in one day. Seeds that were sown 30 years ago, hit by water for one day, will just bloom. This, and the, the desert is like a garden. And in one day, this is, this is how God does it. He, he can do that. And they're saying, pray for revival like, they're praying for revival like that. God, if you choose to restore our fortunes like that, like streams in the Negev, do it. But only you can do it. Only you can do it. And God is teaching us to pray for sudden works of God. When we, we sang about it, but in Acts, we see when the word is preached in Acts and the word begins to move and, and people become Christians and the church starts, it's dramatic and big. And God can do that. And he's telling us to remember the works of revival. It'd be good for us to remember the works of revival. Even in the 1730s and 40s, the first great awakening, God did a, a, a work that is, it can only be attributed to him in a small amount of time in Great Britain and the United States. 
And it wasn't because there were powerful preachers. There were preachers like Jonathan Edwards who just looked at his manuscript the whole time and never looked up and, and, and spoke in monotone voice. It was the word of God combined with the prayer of God's people that revival broke out. It was God's work and his alone. But even though those extraordinary works can happen, and even though we pray for extraordinary works of God and big works of God and quick works of God, that's not normally how he works. Normally how God works among his people restoring their fortunes is more like a farmer. The second image he uses of here of God's restoration of his people is the farming image. He goes out, he tells us, individuals and God's people go out sowing in tears. Now, whatever it is, that part of that is the Great Commission and t- taking the gospel and seeds of the gospel, but part of that is, is just your own discipleship and your life, uh, in your work and, and, and in, your, in your play, sowing in tears in your, in your life shall reap with joy. This is a promise. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, returning to the World War II analogy of 1945, May 8th was not the end of the war. Japan and the Allies were were still at war together, against each other. There There were still fighting going on. But after the devastation of the atomic bomb and Japan surrenders, Japan and America had to get to work if Japan was gonna be restored. And they did. And I'm not saying it was perfect or, or there's, there aren't hard lessons to be learned from there, but I'm saying that Japan was restored in a, in a, in a fairly uh, good and, and quick way. It is because they chose to get to work together. They, Japan said to get to work and America get to work uh, helping with bringing food and supplies. And, and even though it was imperfect, they worked together. And, and even now we have peace with Japan. And friends, in an agricultural community, uh, this wouldn't need a, a lot of explanation. Farmers would have known the way things were supposed to work. This analogy wouldn't need explaining. And, and probably needs less explaining in Corvallis than it does in Manhattan. However, uh, uh, here, we're, we're here. That God is telling us the same thing is in the Christian life. Most of the time, he works slowly over a long period of time, doing mostly overlooked things, like plowing soil like planting seed, like watering and going to sleep and letting God give the increase. Like farming or tending a garden, it's slow. The process is, is slow, and, and, but it is not less real. You, you, you know, I've recently uh, been, been taking up some gardening and you should laugh at that because what I mean by that is I'm basically watering the garden. I go out and I water and I'll, sometimes I'll pick some dead flowers off. And, but I'm gardening. I'm going to stick with it, okay? Uh, and I'm told, uh, you know, in gardening you prepare the soil at a certain time and, the, and, and you prepare the plants and the, you prune the trees and the bushes in the fall and the winter and in May, you know, you can plant whatever, I guess, and whatever you want in May. And the seeds, put the seeds in the ground. In the summer, you water and you deadhead, you cut your fertilizer and you water, water, water. And over time, through a bunch of slow processes, you see change. 
If it had all been at once, it would be dramatic, like the strings in the Negev, like streams in the Negev, in the desert. But it, when it happens over time, it's not less dramatic. It is less dramatic, but it's not less beautiful. The, the marigolds, they still pop. The peonies still pop with color for a time. The lupines and the petunias attract hummingbirds. Friends, this is true of your own personal discipleship as well. Following Jesus is a long game. Over a long period of time, reading the Bible over and over again, praying and, and failing and realizing you need to pray more and, and going back to it and repenting and turning to Jesus over and over again. Sitting under not just one sermon, but lots of sermons. Memorizing scripture and, and singing songs. And, and friends, I just want to tell you, all the people that are here, I, this is what I'm so encouraged about by the group of people that I get to preach to right now on a regular basis. You're all here. You all know this. Life is like farming. Don't get discouraged. In this process, he is restoring us as people. Even when we don't see it. He's restoring us through songs like talk, like singing about the king of kings who came in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. And the light expelled the darkness. The darkness could not handle it and the light expelled the darkness. And for a while, the light went into darkness for you and me into the tomb, but he broke forth from that tomb and, and bringing Life with him. He's restoring your fortunes and he will restore your fortunes. Those who go sowing with tears will, shall reap with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The sheaves are, we used to sing this song in church called Bringing in the Sheaves. You, a couple of you know that song. It's just, it's just like bringing in the harvest, right? It's like bringing in the crop, the rewards from all the hard work you put in there. And friends, it may be true, like in the desert, you, you may have planted seeds 30 years ago, and it's not until God brings the, the water from the mountains in the dry desert, you might be dead and gone before there's ever any harvest. But we can go, we can go with confidence, even in our sorrow and our weeping, we can, we can sow with sweats and, and tears, knowing that God will bring forth the harvest. He'll bring the sheaves with him. They're all for his glory anyway. Christian life is more like farming. It takes hard work and time. Sowing with tears. You will reap with joy. We have, we have sorrow and pain now because not everything is as it finally should be. But we have joy because we know that we are guaranteed a harvest. And dear friends, I just want to thank you for letting us do this together as a people. Thank you for your, your corporate discipleship of me, of, of, of coming week after week, of, your, of your, your, your small acts of faith and generosity, not just for this church, but, but, but for your neighbors, for going and celebrating with them and, and, and for taking the, the gospel to them you will come forth with shouts of joy. It might not be tomorrow. It might be after you're dead and gone. But it's true. God has restored us and is restoring us. So let's take hope.